Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Generous and Prevailing Grace. When I was in school, I hated English class with a passion. I'll be honest with you. It was probably the subject that I liked the least. You see, several of my formative years were spent living in Virginia and West Virginia and Tennessee. And there were times that we lived so far back up in the mountains, you had to pump in sunshine and the lightning had to get in low gear just to reach us, man. We lived in remote places that honestly, unless you went to town, you wouldn't see another human being for weeks or months. You said, you kind of get an idea. And then we would move out of the South. We call it the South. And we'd move up to Wisconsin. And then we would live here for a while. And then we'd move back to West Virginia. Then we'd move to Illinois. Then we'd move to Tennessee. My life was like a little ping pong match of where we lived growing up. And one of the things that I came to see and learn during all that is that Southern people, in particular the ones in the mountains, not only have a language, they have a slanguage. They just cut to the point. I mean, unless you're familiar with that language, you wouldn't understand sometimes what they're even talking about. I mean, when they just look at it and go, are you all right? And you're like, what? But we got used to that. And when my father, who was born in Burks Garden, Virginia, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's on the top of a, a ridge in a valley. It's just absolutely beautiful. That's where my daddy was born. And that's where he was raised at. And so when he would come to the north, one thing I found is you could take the man out of Virginia, but you couldn't take Virginia out of the man. He had the same accent when he lived up here. In fact, I have brothers like that that had been up here for 40 or 50 years, and they sound like they came up last week. They just never lost their accent. And so what happens in those formative years, you learn to communicate, you learn to speak, primarily because of your parents, because they're the ones you're hearing the voices of so much. And one thing I know about a lot of the Southern folks is they have a way of dropping the G off of words that end in ing and there are so many of them i mean you're coming to church you're going home from church you're driving to church you're leaving for church you get to church you're praying at church you're singing at church you're preaching at church you're praying for people at church i mean these words are ubiquitous they're all over the place and because i grew up in my southern years i didn't hear people and probably in particular in my family pronouncing the G on the end of those kind of words. So my singing turned out to be singing. Singing, it's raining, I'm preaching today. And I never knew it until just a few years ago when Valerie began to say to me, do you realize you're leaving the G off of all those words that end in I-N-G? I was kind of offended at first, to be honest with you. I really was. I thought, you know, why are you being so critical with me? Why are you picking on me? But here I am approaching 60 years of age, and I never knew I was doing that. See, I'm getting better. You hear doing? Amen. And then she said, also, you leave the T off of words that end in T, like trust. I would say, trust in Jesus. Or I would say, Jesus Christ. You know, and 
didn't even realize I was doing it. Nobody ever else have said anything to me about this, you know. Maybe they heard it, but they just didn't say anything. Respect. I would just say respect. And so I said, honey, you can't put the t. It sounds like you're trying to get rid of something out of your mouth. Respect. <laughs> Trust in the Lord. I think there's a happy medium somewhere in there that you meet in there, but that's the way I was doing this all my life. And so when I became aware of this, I had a choice to make. Once the revelation hit me, I had a choice to make. I can leave things status quo, which just means don't do anything about it, or I could change. So often in life when we're driving, we come to crossroads. And as we're driving and we come to crossroads, we have to make a decision. Now imagine coming to this crossroad. You have one road that says good and one road that says best. To want to go down a good road when you got a best road doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I made the right choice. It didn't happen right away. But I thought, you know what? I get to determine which road I go down. Now, the same principle applies when we hear the truth of the gospel of generous and prevailing grace. I always say the way we minister would get us kicked out of most churches in America. And yet it blesses people's hearts. It reveals Jesus in all of his loveliness. Remember, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A believer can continue with the status quo of law and grace, or what we call mixture, or they can embrace generous and prevailing grace. And when you embrace generous and prevailing grace, I'm telling you, condemnation will fall off of you like the goodwill price tags. I mean, they'll just fall right off. That's the only thing that will get this condemnation out of your heart. So had it not been for Valerie's transparency and coaching, from time to time she would just correct me when I said it like I shouldn't be saying it. Had it not been for that, I would never have seen the importance, I guess is what I want to say, for proper grammar and tenses. And I believe all of that is working together to make me a better communicator and is helping me to communicate the gospel better to people. At the same time, I want to encourage you, every time you read your Bible, when you study your Bible, to look beneath, look between, look beyond the English words and look to the Hebrew and look to the Greek in terms of their definitions and their meanings, because what happens is it opens up a brand new world. If you want to go deep in the Word, just do that. But yet it's still simple at the same time. Again, the name of the message is Generous and Prevailing Grace. Now, the word generous is an adjective. And what an adjective does is it describes more clearly a noun or a pronoun. The purpose of an adjective is to highlight, it's to bring out something. So let me give you an example of why this is important, okay? 
I know you feel like you're in English class, but I'm going somewhere. Imagine I'm talking to a man that I've just met, and then Valerie walks up. And I say to the man, this is my wife, Valerie. What have I just communicated to this man? I've said, this is my wife. Wife is a noun. Valerie is a noun. But that word my, that little bitty word my, is an adjective. It's what they call a possessive adjective. It means she belongs to me. I've communicated to this man, this is my wife. She belongs to me. See, that's what the Hebrew and Greek begin to do. They begin to pull back this veil. It begins to show us God and Christ in his fullness. And it begins to develop a clearer image and picture of you in Christ, the hope of glory. Now, Valerie walks up. I say, this is my artistic wife, Valerie. What have I done? I've just inserted another adjective, the word artistic. So what I've done is I've communicated to this man, there's a quality about this woman. Imagine I say, this is my artistic and beautiful wife, Valerie. What have I done now? I've told this man she's mine, possessive adjective. I've told this man that she's artistic. There's a quality about this woman. And I've said she is beautiful, which conveys to this man the way I feel about my wife. I want to tell you something. You want to see your ministry change in terms of the way you communicate, the way you present Jesus out there? Describe him in all of his loveliness. Make people hungry for him. Don't just say, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, Jesus saved me. That's all true. But begin to unwrap him. I read here recently where a man left a Christmas present wrapped for 50 years because a girlfriend gave it to him and broke up just before Christmas. And then he finally had to hunt her down through Facebook and he finally said, you know, let's get together. I want to, un it was just a book. That's all it was. I don't want to leave Jesus under the tree or on a tree. I want to show him in all of his loveliness. I want people to see this is what he's done for me. This is the way he continually changes me. And to do so, you've got to describe him. Showcase him. What's my point? One of the greatest disservices I have witnessed in the modern church is that ministers unknowingly overlook, they ignorantly walk around, or they willfully scale down the only message that lights the way out of darkness and condemnation. Listen to me what the message is. It is faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You say, Pastor Mark, wait a minute. Now, every church preaches that. Well, most of them do. There's some that don't. But I'm not done. It's faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Two more words. Plus nothing. That's a message that isn't taught so much. In other words, for me to be righteous in God's eyes, it's me believing in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and putting my faith in His death, burial, and resurrection and adding nothing to it to be saved and be right in His eyes. It's true. Jesus plus nothing for your complete salvation is 
the message, I believe, that awakens this generous and prevailing grace. The message that is proclaimed through our ministry is more robust than a saving grace or a grace that you say at mealtime. Our message is an amazing grace. It's an eternal grace. It's an inexhaustible grace. It's a resting grace. It's a sustaining grace. It is a triumphant grace. Listen, there's no wonder we're called triumphant grace. It's more robust. So what do the words amazing and eternal and inexhaustible and resting and sustaining and triumphant, what do they have in common? They're all adjectives that accentuate how robust and how all-encompassing the gift of grace actually is. And far too long, the church has seen grace as only a saving grace. So for me to say generous and prevailing grace, I'm telling you something, I am making a bold statement and I am accentuating the way I envision grace. Now, the word generous is pinned on the person who is bountiful in their giving. You can't get that attribute pinned on you any other way. You have to be generous in your giving in order to be labeled as generous. Generosity supplies and actually oversupplies the need at hand. Generosity is marked by abundant proportion and generosity is marked and characterized, listen to me, by a kind heart. That's generosity. If the heart is not in it, I don't know what you call it. Generosity are those two things together. When you provide in abundance and you do it with a kind heart, that is generosity. It's the kind of generosity our Father has. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me, and I always do. The most beautiful flower on earth can never compare to the generosity of God. I've seen some pretty flowers. What I love about his generosity is what it does for me is it helps to establish a healthy identity in myself. Because I look to my generous father, I'm made in his likeness and image. I know how he feels about me. And so what it does, it helps to establish a right and healthy identity and image in me. The believer's identity in Christ is not, listen to me, it's not established through your own acts of righteousness. Believers become generous because they are established in Christ. They are established in His generous and prevailing grace. And what does this do when you are established in His grace? What does this do when you're established in His generosity? I'll tell you what it does. It breeds confidence. You become confident, not arrogant, but you become confident of who you are. And I wish the body of Christ was more confident. We have reason to be confident. We have a lot of reasons to be confident. Now, the believer's confidence should never come from their net worth. The believer's confidence should always come from their surpassing worth. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing that through generous and prevailing grace, God has declared us to be righteous by faith apart from the law. 
See, you bring in the law, you're going to lose your confidence. Because now it's up to you, and you're going to find you fail. If you bring in any law, you're going to lose your confidence, and you're going to eventually lose your identity if you do that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Look at these words by the Apostle Paul. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, look at that, on the basis of faith. The words surpassing worth literally means because of the exceptional value. Surpassing, exceptional, worth, value. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the exceptional value of what? Of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see how he took that little bitty adjective and he made him possessive? He said, he's my Lord. He's not just the Lord. He's not just a Lord. He is my Lord. I have taken ownership of him. He has taken ownership of me. He is my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I love this. He said, I consider them garbage. What is he considering garbage? He already told you, he said, I'm considering garbage the things I've lost. Well, what did he lose? In the scriptures leading up to this, the Apostle Paul spoke of his education. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. He spoke of his heritage. He said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He spoke of the fact that he had zeal. And this zeal caused him, of course, we know, to persecute the church. I count all of that stuff, all the pedigrees you want to put on me, he said, it doesn't matter. Do you know what it means to be a Pharisee of Pharisees? Paul was an educated man. I'm going to tell you what, that's why one of the reasons I believe he was picked to write most of the New Testament is Paul knew his stuff. He knew history. He knew what Phariseeism was like. He knew his stuff. But he said, I count all that stuff as dung. I count it as garbage so that I might know Christ. And if we would just say, listen, let the centerpiece of our life be Christ. Let the centerpiece of our life be in knowing Christ. Taking little bitty words like my and allowing that little word to grab a hold of your heart and say, daddy, I belong to you. I'm a possession of yours. And I want to tell you something. Daddy doesn't lose any possessions. You know, I mean, I think we've all been through that, lost our keys, <laughs> can't figure out where we put our keys, lost our wallets, lost our glasses. I lost my glasses one time. I know you've heard stories where people lost them there on top of their head. I lost them one time looking for them a half an hour and I was wearing them. <laughs> Valerie was helping me look for them. <laughs> I'm serious. We were just about to do a skit down in Chicago for Karis Bible College. And do you remember that, Mama? Papa, we were about to do a skit, and it was the story of Jesus' birth, and I was the narrator of this story. And they had very low lighting to give it real ambiance and a scene and whatnot. We had to put on these robes and all this stuff. 
And I knew it was going to be low light, and I knew I needed my glasses. And I thought I took them off when I went to put the robe on and that headdress thing, you know. Whether I did and put them back on or I didn't, I don't know. But then I started looking for my glasses. And I'm like, where are my glasses at? I said, honey, have you seen my glasses? I'm looking straight at her. She's like, no, I haven't. <laughs> oh, my heavens. And we incorporated other people to look for them. And I was telling everybody, don't move because you're going to step on my glasses because it's a very narrow hallway that we were in. You're going to step on my glasses. And finally she said, well, you got them on your face. I said, I do. I felt about that high, man. I felt unworthy to go out there and read the Jesus of Nazareth story. Oh, man. Isn't that crazy? This is what the Apostle Paul's getting at, though. He's saying, you know what? None of this stuff matters. What matters is that I know Christ. So often we get distracted in life. We start chasing our tail. We start chasing things that really won't make a difference. You say, how do you know this, Mark? Because number one, I was there. And number two, I minister to people all the time that are there now. But I'll tell you what, the message of grace, the message of daddy's unconditional love will draw you out of that. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What I want you to see through the message today is this. You can take the man off of Mount Sinai, but you can't take Mount Sinai out of the man apart from the revelation of generous and prevailing grace. You cannot do it. Daddy's generous and prevailing grace. The Word tells us over and over again that our Papa is generous. He is generous! You say, Pastor Mark, can you give me an example of this? How about this one? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Is that generous? That is generous! In other words, what we've got coming, he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to be generous to you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That is generosity, friends. Did you know that 25 out of our 50 states in the United States of America have an active death penalty? Now, whether that is right or wrong, that is not the question. The question is, why are we divided? If it's wrong in one state, it should be wrong in another state. If it's right in one state, then it should be right in another state. We are a divided nation. Papa's not that way. Papa doesn't have a split personality. He doesn't have a divided heart. If Jesus is blessed, then I'm blessed. If Jesus is loved, then I'm loved. If Jesus is a son, then I'm a son. If Jesus is God's beloved, then I'm God's beloved. His love for us is not based upon what state we're in physically or emotionally. State of being, that is. I know the scriptures say that God's ways are not our ways, and that, of course, is set under the Old Covenant, but He wants to teach us His ways. He doesn't want us to stay in the dark. He has made available for every man, regardless of creed, regardless of color, 
and regardless of gender, to receive his generous and prevailing grace, whether you're fighting crime or doing time, everyone needs the generous and prevailing grace of God. Several years ago, I served at the Life Center. At the Life Center, we fed people, not homeless people, but some homeless people came. But we fed people that were down and out. People who didn't have enough dollar to stretch through their week. We would give them food. We would give them clothes. And I was one of the pastors of the Life Center and did most of the devotions in the morning to the volunteers. And I spent the majority of my morning, and it was usually four or five hours, walking up and down a line of people that sometimes was like 100 people long or more. And as I would walk by them, I would just look for God's glory to light on somebody. I was just very sensitive about that. And I would see kind of the glory of God light on somebody, and I would know that's the person. And I would walk up to them, and I would say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, or a couple or whatever, I want to pray for you today. And many of them were afraid to step out of line because they didn't want to lose their place. They've already been in line. Some people had been in line for 10 hours or more to come and get food. Sometimes they would come the night before. So they didn't want to step out of line, then have to go to the back of the line. And if I saw that hesitancy in them, I would say to them this. I said, don't worry, I know how to take you to the front of the line when we're done. And they would come into the prayer room and I would begin to minister to people there. And we saw dozens, hundreds of people come to Christ over the, the five years that Valerie and I served there. There was a man that would come and he would serve there to give out food. And he would always tell me, Pastor Mark, one of these days I'm going to get my brother to come. He needs to know God. He said, one of these days I'm going to get him to come, but he's a tough nut to crack. And I'd say, okay. And one morning he showed up and he said, that's my brother. I said, okay. And so right after devotional time, when we were all going to our stations, I said to the man, would you mind if I visit with you for just a moment? He looked at me in the face. He said, listen, sir, I came here to work. I came here to serve today. I didn't come here to listen to no preacher. He said, don't think you're going to get me to make any kind of decision today that I don't want to make. I said, I'm not trying to get you to make any decision. He said, well, then good. And he walked down to the other end of the building. And so I began to minister to people. See, sometimes when you encounter things like that, it deflates you in a sense. You go, oh, man, nothing's working, God. And so I went about my business. And late morning, maybe it was early afternoon, the Holy Spirit said, go get him. I said, Holy Spirit, you heard what he said? He said, just go get him. And I walked back down in the kitchen area and I said, I called him by name. I said, I just want to visit with you for just a moment. I just want to pray for you for a moment. He reluctantly came down there. And when he sat down, shortly into the conversation, you see, I knew this man had been in prison before. And I knew he hadn't been out for very long. And I knew what he was in prison for. It was for killing a man. And he had served a number of years and had been released. I already knew that. His brother had told me this. And when he sat down and I began to minister the grace of God to him, he looked at me and he said, didn't I tell you when I came in here this morning that I ain't making no decision for Christ? I said, yeah, you told me that. He said, you don't understand. He said, I killed a man. And instantly I said, so did I. And he said, you did? 
I said, yes. And I just moved right on. See, the Bible says if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. That's what I was getting at. He didn't know that. But I'm going to tell you something. Within five or ten minutes, that man was bawling like a baby, accepting Jesus Christ into his heart. And guess where we found him at the next day? He was in our church. He and his wife came to church the very next morning. What made the difference? You say, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Daddy's character, daddy's qualities, daddy's reputation drew that man to him. And he drew Mount Sinai out of that prisoner's heart. Daddy's love and willingness to forgive that man were accentuated when I showcased the generous and prevailing grace of God. So important how we describe our Father. Loving, kind, generous, good God. In Psalm chapter 103, verses 10 through 14, we find these words. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. Oh, I love those words. For those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Man, I love those scriptures. Friends, I want to tell you something. You and I deserve to be in one of those 25 states that have an active death penalty, but God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Oh, we deserve to be there, though. Why? Why doesn't he treat us that way? Because, it says right in the previous scripture, because of his great love for us and because of his compassion for us. Psalm 103, verse 11, out of that mix there, says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That scripture was the inspiration for this message. As I was meditating upon that scripture, that scripture began to bloom like a flower in my heart this past week. That scripture became the inspiration for this message. He's talking about a great love, right, that he has for us. And when we use the word great, I don't know what comes to your mind, enormous, big, large, whatever it may be. It's so much larger in the Hebrew. It is the Hebrew word gavar, gavar, okay? Now, what's important about this word is it means to prevail. So when the Bible says great is his love, he is literally saying prevailing is his love. It says that it's more powerful than opposing forces, and it says to be victorious. That's what's behind this word gavar, which is the Hebrew word for great. Now, there are three letters that make up the Hebrew word gavar. They are the Hebrew letters gamel, bet, and resh. Gavah. Gavar. Gamel, bet, and resh. I think if God says, I've got great love for you, I want to understand this great love a little deeper. Gamel, Bet Resh. Remember, Hebrew letters 
have word pictures, and they have their number system built in. The Hebrew letter Gamel symbolizes a rich man running forth to bestow grace upon the man that's poor in spirit. Do you see the man running? That is Gamel, the rich man running forth to give grace to the poor at heart. Daddy says, great is my love that I'm going to send a rich man running forth to bestow grace upon the poor in heart. Isn't that beautiful? Now the next letter, the next Hebrew letter is Bet. Bet represents the Son of God. Now, Resh, I love this one right here. Resh means one that is bent over, one who has bowed the head. Now look at me. I'm going to put my body in the form of a resh. Do you see that? I have to bow over. I have to bend down to simulate that letter. That letter in the Hebrew means one who has bowed his head. When Psalm 103 verse 11 speaks of the Father's great love, that psalm walks down the aisle to marry herself to the revelation found in John 3.16. And because those two verses point to each other, please give me the liberty of taking those two verses and blending them together. And if I did that, this is about what it would sound like. For God so loved the world that he gave us a rich man, the one that would come bestowing grace upon the poor in spirit. This man is his beloved son, Jesus Christ, a man whose generous and prevailing grace would be released to whosoever believeth in him. This all began for us the moment he bowed his head on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Awesome. Awesome. Psalm 103, verse 11 again. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, Gamel, the rich man running after the poor man. Bet his identity is revealed. It's Jesus, the Son of God. Resh, he bends over to help us. He bows his head to help us. It says, so great is his love for those who fear him. That word love, I love this word. In the Hebrew, it is the Hebrew word chesed. Now, some translations of the Bible will say love there. Some will say mercy there. Some will say loving kindness there. There's different ways they say this. But the truest interpretation of this word is chesed, which means the grace of God. The grace of God. When the scripture says great is his love, it is literally saying prevailing is his grace. What kind of grace? Generous and prevailing grace. The kind of grace that does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers how fragile we really are. Friends, let me tell you something. The petals of a rose are very fragile. They're very beautiful. But if you threw them in a ninja blender for 10 seconds, they would not come out looking the same way. And daddy knows. Daddy knows we're like a flower. Daddy knows how fragile we are. Daddy knows what we're made of. Does the scripture say it there? He remembers that we're made out of the dust of the ground. He remembers how fragile humanity is. That's why the man had to come and chase after the poor man and bend over, bow down, and give the man a hand out of what the Psalm 103 talks about in the beginning where it says, he redeemed us from the pit is what it says. In order to redeem someone from the pit, you've got to bend over. You've got to stick your hand down in the pit. That's exactly what the Father did for us. Psalm 103, look at that. Verses 13 and 14. The word compassion, I love this word too. It is the Hebrew word rakam. Rakam. See, you think you know what compassion is. I'm just going to be nice to somebody. I'm going to be merciful to someone. Oh, it's so much larger than that in God. Rakam. Compassion. Compassion is made with three Hebrew letters. Resh, chet, mem. Resh, chet, mem. Rakam. Resh, remember? The man that's bent over. Chet is life. It means living when something has chet, it's the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it always represents life. Chet means living, and mem means water. The man bent over, giving living water. Isn't that awesome? Now you see what Jesus was getting at when he met with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, the Samaritan woman, at Jacob's well, we find that story in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through? Because the father said, I want you to go through Samaria, son. There were other ways around Samaria, and many people found those ways and took them, but not Jesus. When it says he had to go through, he knew he had an assignment by Papa. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkar. Sukkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Look whose well was there. Jacob's well. I want you to remember that. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, a time when people didn't normally come to draw water. But this woman is an outcast. She has come at a time when she knows nobody else is going to be there. All the women have come and they've received their water for the day. They will come again in the evening, but not at noon. It's too hot. You don't do that. So you can tell she's an outcast. She's not accepted. But she's going to be accepted by Jesus. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her these words, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, look at those words, and he would have given you living water. The same water that the word compassion was prophesying that he's going to bend over with living water. He said, if you just would have known who it is you're talking to and how powerful I am and how I want to accentuate my father's goodness, if you just would have known that, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She says, where can you get this living water? And she brings up that name Jacob again. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water. You know, the word this is actually an adjective. Jesus, no doubt, would have looked down in the well about that time. He said, listen, you know, anyone who drinks this water, he said, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal is an adjective. It describes how robust, how awesome the life is we have. He could have just said, you're going to receive life. But no, he said, you're going to receive eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That's what happened to the man that I ministered to at the life center. The one that had murdered somebody. He thought that God couldn't forgive him. But by the Spirit, I led that man to the well of living water that day. And with one drink, he discovered an amazing grace. He discovered an eternal grace. He discovered a triumphant grace from an inexhaustible supply of living water. Now the woman at the well and the man that led to Jesus had the same problem. I want you to hear what it was. The revelation of daddy's great love and compassion had been hidden from them through the religion of a man-made well. That's what God was getting at when he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2 and verse 13. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, look at that, the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, for too long, the church has been digging its own wells. Jesus said, listen, if I put the well on inside of you, you are never going to thirst. Why are you so thirsty? I'm going to put the well on the inside of you. Psalm chapter 103, verses 13 and 14 again, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I love this word rakam because it literally means 
to fondle. It means to handle or to touch someone in a lovingly way, affectionate way, or tender way. It means to caress. As I was meditating upon that yesterday, my attention was drawn back to when our kids were little, and now we do it to our grandchildren. When they come and they lay on your lap, one of the things that will put them at rest and put them to sleep quicker than anything is just to take your fingers and start combing it through their hair. What are you doing? You're fondling. You're showing your affection. You're showing tenderness to that child. It just puts them at rest. And that's what daddy wants to do through his compassion. It means to fondle. It means to be affectionate. It means to be tender toward. It means to caress our hearts. Why? So that we can fall asleep on Papa's lap. So we can fall asleep in Papa's heart. We see from Psalm 103, again, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities then what is God's response? Let me ask that question for you. Then what is His response? He gives us His great love. Did you see it in the Scripture? He said, I'll give you my great love. He gives us His generous and prevailing grace. He has rakam. He has compassion for His children. And like the woman at the well, Jesus gives us a drink of living water, and we in turn, like I said, become the well of His amazing, eternal an inexhaustible grace, a cistern that we didn't dig. It is a well that contains the spring of living water. The truth that was foreshadowed in Psalm 103, remember the rich man bestowing his grace upon the poor in spirit through his bowed head would become our reality at the cross 2,000 years ago. John chapter 19 and verse 30. Look at these words. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As I was meditating upon that yesterday, I thought, now that's an interesting detail. Why does it give us the detail that he bowed his head and then gave up his spirit. I mean, you put any vertical man on a cross and let him die, I guarantee every man's head's going to drop. Unless your head itself is nailed spiked to a cross, your head is going to fall. You fall asleep, your head's going to go down. Why would it give us that detail? It doesn't say that about the criminals, but it tells us about Jesus, that he bowed his head. I believe that the Apostle John was intentionally reaching all the way back into Psalm 103 and grabbing the three Hebrew words, gavar, chesed, and rakam, as a tribute to remind us of the great love and compassion that we have been given freely through His generous and prevailing grace. It came from the man who bowed his head in silence. Friends, let me tell you something. God did not become generous when Jesus died on the cross. God has been generous from the beginning. That's why Jesus died on the cross. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, we find these words. This is so tender to my heart. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Do you hear that? The more I compelled them to come, the more they went the opposite direction. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. Look at this next word. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. That's what Papa does. I had to look for that photo last night. I knew I had it somewhere. I've never seen a photo in my life that meant more to me than that photo right there. I see the love of a grandmother kissing that baby, holding that baby so precious. Friends, that's what Rockham does. It's compassion. That's what his grace does. It grabs us. And the Bible says it's like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. The place he's close to you where he can hear you whisper, where he can hear that gentle, small voice, where he can hear you breathing. And he said, I bent down to feed them. Who and what is God talking about in these scriptures? He's talking about his chosen people, the Israelites. He's talking about how the Israelites toggled in and out of, I'm faithful, I'm unfaithful. I'm faithful, I'm unfaithful. But in spite of their unfaithfulness, God taught them to walk and he healed them. That's what we're doing at Triumphant Grace Ministries. We're teaching people how to walk. We're teaching people how to talk. We're teaching people how to be healthy from the inside out. He's talking in these scriptures about a generous and prevailing grace that expressed itself through cords of human kindness and ties of love. Hosea chapter 11, verse 4 again. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. That's what resh does. It bends down to feed us living water and the bread of life. I bent down so that I could feed them with my generous, prevailing grace. My final scriptures are found in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And that word mercy right there, guess what it is? It is chesed. It means the grace of God. He delights in giving us grace. What kind of grace? Generous and prevailing, triumphant grace. Conquering, overcoming, always winning grace. That's the kind of grace we have. He will turn again. He will have compassion. Raka. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities 
and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Micah summarized kind of the same thing that the psalmist said in Psalm 103. He talked about God's great love. He talked about God's compassion. He talked about Him forgetting our sins and our iniquities and our transgressions. How beautiful can you get? Isn't He a lovely Papa? Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message and from these scriptures today are these. The Bible has no shortage of adjectives that describe our surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus. I'm talking about adjectives that accentuate the Father's grace and compassion for His children. These expressions of His love draw us with cords of kindness and ties of love into His inexhaustible well of living water. This living water is none other than Jesus Christ, the rich man, who bowed his head in death on the cross, immediately following his cry from the cross of, it is finished. We are no longer in the deep woods of Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is no longer in us. Generous and prevailing grace have lifted us like a little child to the cheek of the one who bent down to feed us. How does he feed us? by reminding us that He does not treat us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That is one way. He feeds us by putting us in remembrance that generosity is marked by abundant proportion. And generosity is characterized always by a kind heart. The kind of heart that comes from a kind heart, our Papa God. Friends, it's through loving touches and tender affection that daddy teaches us how to walk. How does he do this? He does this by caressing our hearts with generous and prevailing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Daddy, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for generous and prevailing grace. I want to thank you, Father, that I'm reminded even now that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and he came up out of the Jordan River, that majestic voice said, this is my possessive adjective. Beloved, who he means and who he is to me. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Daddy, what's true about Jesus is true about us. We possess we are the carriers of this awesome, amazing grace. I thank you for the man that bowed his head. His name is Jesus. The man that came in the form of Resh to reach down into a pit and pull us out of that pit and crown us with tender mercies and loving kindness. I thank you for this man named Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you're raising up a generation of people that will stand and they will make him lovely. They will showcase Jesus in all of his loveliness. What has he done for me? I'll be happy to tell you. I want to thank you, Father, that we're led by the Spirit of God. We are led by the Spirit of God. 
And so we know how to speak the things of God. And Father, there are times when it doesn't seem like it worked. It doesn't seem like we had the instant gratification and manifestation of what we were looking for. But nonetheless, we're confident of this one thing, that we have left behind the way the world thinks. The world thinks a certain way. We have left that behind knowing that the Jesus that bent over for me bent over for all humanity. And Father, we thank you. When he bent over, he put his hands around us, his arms around us, to pull us close to his cheek like a little child and tell us, you are the recipient of generous and prevailing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.